Well, this morning we begin with some of the greatest questions ever asked. We can look across a broad range of vocations to discover them. There is the football coach, Vince Lombardi, who once asked, if it doesn't matter who wins or loses, then why do they keep score? There's the scientist, Albert Einstein, asking himself, what if I rode a beam of light across the universe? An unusual question which led him to the theory of relativity. We can identify with the philosopher, Plato, who asked, have you ever sensed that our soul is immortal and never dies? Or perhaps the average toddler who asks over and over again, why? You may also be familiar with many of the greatest questions asked in Scripture. It was the serpent who asked, did God really say? Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then there's the eminent apostle, the apostle Paul, who asked, if God is for us, who is against us? This morning, when David asks a question, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? These are questions of fellowship or communion, or relationship. These questions come to us from Psalm chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up with me to Psalm 15. We'll spend the next few Sundays in the Psalms, hearing the word of the Lord through poetry and song. It's essentially what the Psalms are. In Psalm 15, David will ask two questions about fellowship with God. He's going to then proceed to answer these questions, giving us ten answers, which really neatly group into five groups. We'll see why that is in a moment. The psalm will end with an encouraging promise, then, for the believer. I like this psalm, and I believe it's relevant for our lives because I hope we ask similar questions. I would expect that as believers in Jesus Christ, we want relationship or communion with our Father God. And I suspect that at times in our lives, there's some reflection about that, some meditation on that. Am I in relationship with God? How is that relationship doing? Well, as we do, as we reflect on those questions, the answers are found in the Scriptures. And this is a very important place for us. Because the temptation can even be, yet among believers, to find the answers elsewhere to find a different bar or a different standard on which to base that relationship with God. For example, one may base his relationship on emotions. If I'm feeling good, then things must be good with God. You can flip that around and imagine how the other way of viewing it could create a problem. If I'm not feeling good, things must not be good with God. It's also tempting to base our relationship on our circumstances. If life is good, if I'm problem-free, then God must be blessing me. My relationship with God is great. Well, First Peter taught us that that's not so true either. It could be experience. 
Maybe we base our relationship with God on our earthly relationships. But our relationship with God can be different than our earthly relationships. And it could be simple fabrication, where it's a relationship merely of invention. Perhaps we come to God not absent of biblical truth in evaluating our relationship, but not necessarily steeped in it either. Well, we need to hear from God on this question. God gives us a standard. We want to ask Him the big questions about our relationship to Him. And that's what we're up to today. Now, this morning, we'll discover five answers to this question of communion with God. Psalm chapter 15. It begins a psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does he do evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Well, I want to begin with these questions, but before we do, we need to look at this author. The psalm begins with what is called a superscription, a fancy word for a heading. It's a psalm of David. David seems like an unlikely author for this psalm, doesn't he? Didn't David commit adultery? Didn't David kill Uriah, one of his leading commanders? Didn't David take many concubines? Didn't David fail to parent his children? Didn't David conduct a census resulting in the deaths of 70,000 Jewish men? Didn't David sin as many a rotten sinner does? This is a David who needs to stick to Psalms like Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, he writes. Created me a clean heart. He needs to stick with all those other lines of that psalm. But what else do we know about this David? The Bible tells us, somewhat surprisingly, that he's a man after God's own heart. And upon further reflection, we may discover that he is a man very much like you and I. This peculiar blend of what we are with what we will be in the Lord. So we may ask in a different way, but he asks the questions that Christians in our day would ask. In verse 1, it's a question for fellowship. The question for fellowship, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, I believe these questions are questions that are asked by a believer. In the Old Testament, we may call this person a God-fearer, one who reveres and respects God. In our day, we call this person a Christian, one who's living by faith and striving to obey the Lord. That's the person asking these questions. And you can almost hear it in the opening, in those first two words, O Lord. That's the cry of of a believer 
This word Lord in all caps in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's a very personal name for God. It, it says something of a personal relationship to him. And the psalmist calls upon God, exclaiming, O Lord, over 200 times in the Psalms. And you can imagine there's quite a range of emotion. The context is numerous. This call captures vast joy in some places. Elsewhere, it's a crippling fear. O Lord, is spoken by those with intense anger. And this morning, it's an eager desire. Oh, Lord, how can I commune with you? Now, to be clear, this question, it could be asked by someone whose light just went on. You know what I mean? When we first come to realize that we have sin and we are not right with God and God exists and we want to know him. This is the the question that could arise when one realizes his or her spiritual condition. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, reveals that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And coming to that reality could very well lead to this kind of question. But I believe it's David and the believing Jew of his time who would ask, who can be with you, Lord? To abide in God's tent would have been to visit the tabernacle. God ordained in the Old Testament a tent or a a tabernacle. This is where people came to to worship or offer sacrifice. During the Exodus and in the wilderness, this would be a place of significance for the people. This is a significant location where the presence of God dwelt. And as they're journeying along, as they're moving about in this vast horde of people, they would set up camp and establish the tabernacle. And they would pack it up to, to move again some, some more miles to set it up again. It was a, a tear up and, and, and tear down type of tent. Who may dwell on your holy hill? This is a similar question, but a bit different. Here David is speaking of Jerusalem, probably Mount Moriah in particular. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David brings in the the Ark of the Lord, an important piece in Jewish worship, and he places it inside of a tent. Now, we don't know if that's exactly the background for this psalm, but in the Bible, it's about as close as we come, based on what we know. And it's also worth noting how David is advancing his thought in these two questions. Look at the first one. David sought to abide there. To abide would be to dwell almost as an alien or as a foreigner. And in the second one, he seeks to dwell there. That means to to settle down or to sit down. Now, of course, a worshiper can't sit down and settle into the tabernacle, but the point remains. There's a desire communicated through this. We can hear the desire of the psalmist even as he speaks that way. And what David now does is he proceeds through the rest of the psalm to answer these questions. These are five answers to the question. The answers to fellowship in verses 2 through 5. Verse 1 is the question of fellowship. And verses 2 through 5 are the answers to fellowship. 
Now, as I mentioned, these verses contain 10 marks, and these marks qualify a man or a woman to fellowship or, or worship the Lord. Now, we can distill this down to five points because the psalm itself is written that way. Now, this psalm is, is poetry, and there's a certain meter or a certain cadence to how the psalm is written. James Montgomery Boyce has shown something called Hebrew parallelism. This is a means of writing to show us or communicate a message. And two halves of of one line in this way of writing are going to say almost the same thing. There's two beats, one, two, to each of these points that David's going to make. To give you an example, in verse two, they sometimes say basically the same thing, yet slightly different. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness, two beats. Well, sometimes this parallelism contrasts or it sets ideas against one another. In verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, two beats. You can hear how they go together. Sometimes this way of writing is going to follow our verse numbers. Sometimes it won't. The verse numbers weren't in the original psalm, but that's okay. The point I'm trying to make is that this psalm has an outline built into it, which will guide us through the answers to the questions. Now, I take the first part of verse 2 to be something of a summary or an umbrella over which all these other answers are going to fall. The last sentence of verse 5, I believe, is a promise. That is its own separate line. It's going to promise or address the audience after the answers are given. Well, before we begin, there's two more observations to make here. As we work through this psalm, we need to remember that this isn't an exhaustive list. David doesn't set out here to give us every possible Uh, behavior or conduct one must have to worship God. And you may observe as well as we work through this that these answers here, they're they're moral. They're not ceremonial. And keep in mind that the Israelite of David's day had to think about a lot more than you and I do. I mean, ceremony was a big, big deal. You had to be ritually clean. You had to think about your sacrifice and so on before you went to the tabernacle. David is not addressing that in this psalm. You see, the concern in this psalm is not about wardrobe, as though what we wear somehow has an impact on our fellowship with God. Uh, The issue here is not music, as though one style is holier than another. Uh, The issue here is not offering, as though God loves that ritual in and of itself. No, there is more to fellowship with God than ceremony. And that's what David is speaking to. So David begins then with this overarching observation, this umbrella. We might call it a thesis or a main idea. Who may commune with God? Those with character. Those with character. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Now to be a person of integrity is to be someone who is whole. This is to be unified where the inside and the outside, where they go together, It doesn't mean that you are sinless, but it does mean you don't run after it as well. We might say that he or her of character handles sin biblically. David describes this person, this person of integrity, as walking. 
You're familiar with that language, perhaps, from the Bible. The Bible often speaks about our pattern of living as a walk or a journey. We are walking. So the general lifestyle of this person is one of integrity. And the second beat of this first line, the person of character is also marked by good deeds. He or she works righteousness. I like the translation. It reads, he does what is right. Now, what God says about deeds in the Bible, that is our standard for what is right. You know this. The Bible uses terms like righteous or wicked to describe what is good or bad. You and I don't determine that. Government agencies or school boards or human interest groups, no one determines that. God alone determines that. That's God's department. And describing then what is good What qualifies for fellowship? This is something that David begins to do today in this psalm. So under this main heading, underneath integrity and righteousness, we now have our five answers. Who can commune with God? Those with pure speech. Those with pure speech. The last line of verse 2 and the first line of verse 3, they go together. Two beats. He speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. You can hear how this is about speech. The characteristic of pure speech, you can note here, begins on the inside and it works its way to the outside. It was Jesus who will say in Luke chapter 9, verse 45, the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Speech is a simple reflection of our hearts. Our words are simply saying what's inside. And notice in this psalm where the truth is spoken. The truth is spoken in the heart. It's kind of an unusual way to phrase that, isn't it? I believe the point that's trying to be made here is that if you and I are speaking truth in our hearts, our mouths are going to follow. The book of Proverbs says a great deal about this. Pure speech is to speak with knowledge, with thoughtfulness, with self-control, with fewer words. Pure speech is to speak with persuasion, and with patience in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs, pure speech is gentle. It calms those who are angry. Pure speech is selective. Be careful who you you divulge to. A pure speech is fully informed. It doesn't issue verdicts before it has all the information. In Proverbs, pure speech is timely. In fact, bad timing is like someone yelling in your ear in the morning, says Proverbs. Proverbs also goes on to say what our psalm says, that pure speech is without slander. Pure speech is without slander. I hope you're seeing the connection here between words and wisdom in this psalm. In verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. Slander would be words that are spoken that are going to harm someone else or, or tear them down. Sometimes the slander happens by accident. 
Um, Other times it's intentional. It can take the form of gossip in many cases. The Hebrew word has to do with a spy or with walking around. It's pretty good imagery to, to backfill the meaning of this word. It's very reinforcing. You can almost imagine someone walking around or his or her dark circles and, and taking some information here and distributing there as someone would walk around almost as a spy. It appears the biggest problem here is how this devalues people. And God places great value upon every person. Slander devalues those that God values. That's why slanderers cannot abide in his tent. Now, for you and I this morning, we want to pause here and consider if this is something we do. Is this something we need to repent of? Do we slander? Do we gossip? Do we harm other people with our words? But whether that is you or not this morning, I want all of us to go a step further in applying this particular line. Determine this morning that you will not be a safe place for slander. Not only that you yourself have filled your heart with truth so that when you speak, your speech is pure, and not only that you yourself would cease from slander, but all that is mucky and moldy and musty about words, about speech, that it would have no place in your life that those who slander would no longer come to you because they know you're not a safe place for that kind of talk. Those who commune with God are those of pure speech. And may you and I develop a reputation for tolerating nothing but that speech. Look at our second point this morning, asking the question, who may commune with God? Well, those who love others. It's the second and third lines of verse 3. Nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The biblical idea of neighbor could be basically anybody that lives in your orbit. Of particular relevance to the original audience, those who would have heard this psalm would have been the law. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We know part of that well. Jesus brings it over into the New Testament. Evil in our psalm toward a neighbor is going to be a pretty broad way of of issuing a command, but you heard in Leviticus, it gets specific. It speaks to, to revenge and it speaks to harboring anger. Uh, certainly unloving attitudes toward other people. And the second line of our psalm, it gets just as specific. To commune with God, we may not take up a reproach against a friend. If everyone is my neighbor in this verse, then my friend is particularly close. Those closest to me. Today's a good day to examine this one in our own hearts. It's Communion Sunday. It's the Lord's Supper The idea is to come together unified, where we would be repenting of these sins or or examining ourselves before taking the elements. 
there's a real risk that we run in the Christian life, and it's that we have a divorce problem. Uh, many Christians have a divorce problem where we divorce our love for God and we divorce it from a love for God's people. But if our horizontal relationships across the board with one another are broken, then the vertical one is broken as well. Without love, the Bible says we cannot have unity. And if we don't have unity, we should not take the Lord's Supper. Listen to what John says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Those who commune with God love others. Thirdly, who can commune with God? Those who honor God. And this is verse four. The first two lines present a contrast. We are going to honor what we value. Those who commune with God despise a reprobate. One version reads, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Well, (laughs) that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? We're supposed to love everybody, right? Well, two observations may help out with this. Four other times in the Psalms, it is God himself who despises. This exact same word is used each time. I'll give you one example. This is Psalm 53, verse 5. In that verse, God rejected or God despised wicked workers. Now, the first four verses of that psalm tell us why God despised them. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There was no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? Verse 5, God despised them. We also should consider the second line in this point. Just an understanding how to under and how to interpret this language. Again, there's there's two beats to this, and the second beat will help us understand the first a bit. It's going to impact the meaning, especially in this contrast. The second part says, but he honors those who fear the Lord. So there's there's a counterbalance to this. And we're hearing some spiritual discernment here. We're hearing biblical values come through here. I guess to ask it one way, who do you honor this morning? When you step out of this building, who do you run with? Those who commune with God share God's values. And they're going to commune with other people who share the same values. They do not honor the reprobate. They do not honor the world. They do not honor the culture. They do not honor those who are elevating the microphone and the screen and the places of most influence. To ask this very simply, who do you want to be with this morning? There are times where you and I must be with certain people. Tomorrow morning, some of you will return to the workplace. You have to be with those people. 
And for some this morning, you have to be in church because that's the understanding. That's the agreement. That is the cultural norm. But when it's up to you, who do you want to be with? To commune with God, we reject God's enemies and we honor those who revere God. Amen. Who, who can commune with God? Fourthly, those with integrity. Those with integrity. In verse 2, we discuss this mark as what I would call an overarching theme of the psalm, and it, it comes up again in this next meter. Who may commune with God? He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Here's a man who's going to keep his word no matter what. Here's a woman who's going to keep her word no matter what. This scenario could be someone has made an oath or, or a promise. It could be a simple yes or no, as Jesus identifies in the New Testament. And where integrity exists, it is the pattern to do what one says, even if, even if it becomes difficult or it becomes inconvenient. We can look to the Lord as the best illustration of this. Our Lord is so faithful. He is a God of perfect integrity. In the Bible, there are places where God swears an oath. In Psalm 89, verse 35, he says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. It's kind of a big statement. But you know what else is true about all the Scripture? Is that God simply speaks. He speaks very simply. When he says something, he will do it without having to make an oath or a promise. His yes is yes and his no is no. In fact, hope, our entire hope is based on this. That God says he will do something and he will do it. He is faithful. He is promise-keeping. He is a God of integrity. And you sense in this psalm that he seeks worshipers of that same devotion. Who may commune with God? Those with integrity. And then fifthly, lastly here, who can commune with God? Those who deal fairly. In verse 5, David speaks of financial dealings. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. I'd say in our day, one example of arguably unfair dealing is the payday loan. These are financial establishments that are often located in poor neighborhoods and tend to prey upon those with the most economic challenges. And what they do is they lend a, a high cost, a short-term loan to a consumer. And on the next payday, that loan needs to be paid back in full. To give you an example, for every $100 borrowed, a borrower would be charged $10 or $20 or $30 on top of it. And if that loan isn't repaid on the first day of the agreement, a fee is added and the cycle repeats. There can also be a late fee, a return payment fee, a non-sufficient funds fee. If there is a rollover option, there's a fee for that too. In Old Testament Israel, that type of dealing is prohibited. Exodus 22, verse 25, if you lend to my people, to the poor among you, you were not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, 
You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to possess. So you heard there that that the Jewish people may not charge fellow Jewish people interest, but they could charge other people interest. And in other readings I've done, this whole thing got quite complex by the time it was run through. But if you look at the Hebrew word for interest in verse 4, there's a little more light shed on this. The word from interest is derived or translated as something close to the word bite. The Lord tells Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. That word serpent is very, very close to the word for interest in our text this morning. To charge crazy interest would be essentially to bite a fellow Israelite. But those who commune with God, they deal with other people fairly. You see in our passage here, the psalmist also addresses bribery. Bribery would be a perversion of justice. In Deuteronomy 16, the Lord made it clear that not only does he command impartiality, but to disobey that, well, it would jeopardize Israel's ability to settle the land, the promised land. And if you're familiar at all with the Ark of the Old Testament, bribery becomes a real issue among the people, among the leaders, among those who possess authority and are to wield just ruling. It was Isaiah who spoke God's words to them. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves, he said. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Partiality, playing favorites, it hinders communion with God. Especially when it harms the innocent, or the orphan, or the widow. It could be bribery, it could be something else, but those who deal fairly, it is those who will commune with God. So, we must deal fairly, we must speak purely, we must love others, we must honor God, we must walk with integrity. So to ask this question one more time. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? No one. Every one falls short of this standard. But we're not Old Testament Israel, right? There's good news for us because we can flip over to the New Testament and we can find some comfort and some solace and some encouragement there. So as we do, what do we see as we peruse the New Testament looking for those things? Well, on speech, Jesus says, we will give an account for every careless word spoken. In fact, our words will justify us or our words will condemn us. On love, Jesus says we are not worthy of him if we love our father or our mother or our sons or our daughters more than him. On honor, James says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Those who make friends of the world become enemies of God. On integrity, Jesus says not only should we not swear, but to say more than yes or no is to speak the words of the devil. 
And when it comes to fair treatment, it is James who says again that favoritism is sin. And to stumble at just one point is to break the law. And if in some case that we are feeling pretty good, that on some of these we are excelling, it is Jesus who says at the end of it all, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So no one may abide in God's tent, and no one may dwell on his hill, and no one may commune with God, no one alone. But someone did dwell, and someone does abide, and his name is Jesus Christ. In speech, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. In love, he laid down his life for his friends. You will never find a greater love than that. In honor, he glorified God, having accomplished all that God ordained for him to do. And in integrity, God himself boomed from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when it comes to fair treatment, he heals impartially the gospel to the poor, liberty to captives, sight for the blind, freedom to the oppressed, to commune with God, we need Christ to abide in his tent, to dwell on his hill. No one can do that alone, and anyone can do that in Christ. That means first that we need him. And if you were here this morning, asking some of these big questions about God, then I have good news for you. That you can know God this morning, right now, where you are. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, that you sin and he forgives, if you believe that he died and rose again, if you turn from your sin and you believe that God, he is God's son, you will know God. That is the promise of the Bible. And you will spend eternity with him. You will dwell with him. You will abide with him. And if you're a Christian this morning and you struggle with where this bar has been set, it's been set high, hasn't it? This has been but a sampling of of the rest of what Scripture teaches. Faith in Christ redeemed you and faith in Christ empowers you. We came to Christ to come to God. That's something that the gospel did for us. But we keep coming to Christ. Listen, there is never a point in our lives where we say, I'll take it from here, God. That is not a wise way to live the Christian life. The Lord Jesus continues to be our strength. He continues to be our advocate. And we need that. Because you and I will never perform these righteous deeds perfectly. But in Jesus Christ, there is grace. And that means that we ought to be living lives of repentance. That in light of who God is, we ought to have a prayer life. And in light of who God is in our prayer life, there ought to be an aspect of confession. When we're confessing our sins and agreeing with God, that we've sinned and that we are wrong and that we are receiving grace when we confess. There is unending grace for the believer and that we're getting up out of the muck and mire of our sin and our struggles and we are walking again because Jesus Christ gives us grace. Psalm 15, it sets a high bar. 
I mean, certainly we want it to do its work. And when it does, what's it going to do? It's going to challenge us in our worship. This psalm challenges me in how I approach God. The Jew who heard this, he needs to think about what this psalm says before he goes waltzing into the tabernacle. I mean, when he goes in there, he's not going into his house. He's not going into work. This is no social club. He is going into the very presence of a holy God. So maybe we walk a little slower and we think a little deeper and we examine just a little bit closer. And as you confess your sin and as you walk by the power of God, you will not be shaken. He who does these things will never be shaken, the final line of our psalm this morning. Because you have Jesus Christ. You can commune with God in Christ. Last week I read this meme. It's a picture of Martin Luther hammering the 95 theses to that Wittenberg door. And the meme read, Luther had 95 problems, but salvation wasn't one of them. I thought that was so good because that's true for you and I this morning. If you have Christ, you have salvation. And if you have Christ, you have the power to do what God commands. And as you do, until that day, you will not be shaken. Let me pray for you. Oh, Holy Father, the bar is set high to be with you and to fellowship with you. And we see our own sufficiency this morning, perhaps some to the point of despondency. Father, please, in Christ, reach down and lift us up. I pray that we would not become discouraged. I pray that we would see the grace given in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would not be shaken. Thank you for the challenge of living righteously and thank you for the power given to meet that challenge. We love you and want to honor you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.